You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Once again, it is so exciting to be able to open up God's Word with you in your homes. So if you have your Bibles, which you should, uh, turn them over to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 3. And I want to talk this week and even next week about the kingdom of God. Um, This is an important topic. There's a lot to learn on this topic. Um, The goal over the next couple of weeks would be to understand what the kingdom of God is and what our part, what our role should be when it comes to being part of that kingdom and expanding that kingdom. So I'm going to entitle this next two weeks, Expanding God's Kingdom. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, and this is Dr. Luke pinning this down by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to, to do and to teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. As we go through the word of God, you can't help but see there is this reoccurring focus on a kingdom from the the beginning all the way to the end. And it is a kingdom that involves this world, but is also a kingdom that is beyond this world. Scripture reveals there have been battles over this kingdom and the rightful ruler of this kingdom. And this is a, a controversy that began sometime after God created the heavens and the earth. There, in what we see as labeled the kingdom of heaven, Lucifer, or we know him better as Satan, he had been given a very high-ranking position, but he wanted more. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 through 19, it talks about his position. You could look that up later. But in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, it describes Satan's desire for more and what what God did about that. It says there, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who have weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And here it is. I will be like the most high. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 15 to verse 17, God has a word to say about all that. Where Satan is like, I'm going to be God. I'm going to be above him and above all people. Well, the word of God comes and says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, down to the lowest depths of the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth's tremble? Who shook the kingdoms? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open his house to his prisoners? When Satan rebelled, there were a couple of things that happened. Number one, Satan was kicked out of heaven and cast down to earth. Number two, it says one day he will be cast down to Sheol or the Abuso. That that part in the book of Revelation where we get to chapter 20-ish where he will be bound in a pit in the middle of the earth for a thousand years. 
years, and eventually he will end up in the lake of fire. But currently, Satan has taken his rebellious plan and he is unleashing it on the earth. Whether it's in heaven or on earth, Satan is fighting to rule and to reign. Right now, Satan is all about the expanding of his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And we see throughout the earth, everywhere he has conquered. We see it through people who are caught up in evil practices. We see it where people are rebellious against God. We see it where, where there is debauchery and immorality. We see it in the darkness of pornography. We see it in the darkness of materialism. All around the world, Satan has established a kingdom of darkness. And that kingdom of darkness is established through people where he rules and he reigns. He rules and he reigns their life. Now, the Bible uses a couple of different terms when it comes to describing God's kingdom. The kingdom of Satan is the kingdom of darkness. But God's kingdom is a different kingdom. It's described as the kingdom of God, and it's also described as the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is used in Scripture referring to the spiritual kingdom of God. Kingdom of God refers to a literal kingdom that is yet to be established on the earth. A kingdom whose capital will actually be the city of Jerusalem. A kingdom that we see beginning to be established at the end of the tribulation period in chapter 19 going into chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. Spirit, or scripture makes it very clear that there will be a time and a season and a place for God to establish both aspects of his kingdom. The literal kingdom, a time and a place. The spiritual kingdom, a time and a place. Now for years, the Jews were looking for a physical kingdom. When Jesus walked on the earth, that's what they were fixated on. They knew that God had promised them a kingdom. And they looked for this kingdom in the physical sense. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 7 it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called. And it says he will be called the Lord of righteousness. So you can't blame the Jews that were living in the days of Jesus for desiring a kingdom. Their prophets had talked about that. In Psalm 48, 1 through 3, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north. Listen, the city of the great king. And so the Jews, they were looking for this physical kingdom when Jesus walked on the earth. But the time for that physical kingdom had not yet come. And it would not come for centuries to come. It is yet to come, even as we go through these passages today. When Jesus came on the scene... It was all about the spiritual aspects of his kingdom. That's what John the Baptist, who was his cousin, but was also the forerunner of Christ, was all about. He was all about preaching the kingdom of, of heaven. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And it describes John. John was clothed in 
camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. And he even talked about his diet, that he, he, he ate locust and, and wild honey. And it says that the area of Jerusalem and all of Judea, they would go out to the region around the Jordan to see John. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So the message of John was just this. He came proclaiming this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he had in mind this spiritual kingdom. For 400 years, the the nation of Israel, up until that point, had not heard the voice of a prophet. And now the one who Isaiah prophesied to come has come. Now, his name is John. John's name actually means gift of Jehovah. His first words in verse 2 there, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as you go through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, he was all about presenting the king. So over 30 times, he brings up the kingdom of heaven. And what John was saying was that This kingdom is very near. Now, the kingdom was very near because the king was very near. At this time, Jesus had already taken on flesh. At this time, Jesus was about to enter his ministry years, which means he's close to about 30 years old. So John's message to Israel was this. The king is near. He is coming, so clean up your act. You need to make your ways straight. You need to clean up the the paths of your life. A bit later, John would challenge the religious leaders. And this is important for any of you that might be listening here. And you, you, you say, you know, I'm a religious person. And you base your... Righteousness. You base your right standing with God based on, on what you've done for God. And you've got your checklists. Well, there were those in the days when Jesus was walking on the earth and, and doing his ministry that were just like that. There were religious people. And they, they believed that salvation, right standing with God, righteousness with God was attained by, by their own merit, by things that they did, by works that they, that they kept. And, and one of those religious sects was, was Judaism. And the, the, the religious leaders, the, the, the ones that, that led Judaism, they actually, you know, they were running around saying, look it, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, when it comes to being in right standing with God, <laughs> we're born into the right family. There are a lot of people today that if you ask them, Hey, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. And well, well, tell me, when when did you become a Christian? And they will do the same thing. They will say, well, I was born into a Christian family. And that, of course, does does not make us a Christian. And for the Jews in those days, it did not make them righteous before God just because they were born as a Jew into the the family of Judaism. John the Baptist, as he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, just a few verses later, a little while longer, he would address them and he would say, look, you're running around saying, we have Abraham as our father. We're born into this family. We're cool with God. John says, no, 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 no. You too need to repent. You need to turn from putting faith in your works for righteousness. You need to turn from putting faith in your keeping the law and the traditions of your fathers in a means of gaining righteousness. And you need to turn from that to the one that I'm pointing you to, the king and the kingdom that is his, the kingdom that he is offering. And that's what John's baptism was all about. It was all about repentance. He was calling people to turn 
from anything that was keeping them from right standing with God, whether it's religiosity or whether it's sin. And the Jordan River there that they would come out to and be baptized in was just a picture. It was like a type of death. Going down in the water pictured death to the old life, death to what I thought religion would provide for me but never could actually give me. Bearing that old life and coming up pictured the new life that we would have by putting faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' coming would bring a heavenly kingdom with a spiritual domain within the hearts of men. And this kingdom is offered to any who are willing to repent of their sins and accept and follow the king. If Jesus rules and reigns in your heart today, you are part of that kingdom. That kingdom is part of you. John's calling was to awaken people to that reality. John's calling was to point them to the king and the hope that he offers them. When Jesus began his ministry, he would actually repeat what John the Baptist, his cousin, the forerunner, had said. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus leaves his, his town of Nazareth, where he, he lived. And he heads up a little bit more to the area of the Sea of Galilee. And he enters into a city that he would do a lot of a ministry, the city of Capernaum. And, and Matthew says in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 14, he's so detailed. Matthew likes to tie what Jesus did to the Old Testament, validating or verifying him as, as God, as the fulfillment of those prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke about the Messiah. He says, now, when Jesus left Nazareth and he came into Capernaum, he says he did that, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah, where in Isaiah it says, well, in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee, the people who sat in darkness have now seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region, a shadow of death, light has dawned. So, you know, Matthew's like, when Jesus went from his hometown to begin his ministry, and he moved towards the Galilean region, and he walked into the very city of Capernaum, it says, do you know that in Isaiah, it prophesied that that would actually happen, that there would be a people living in darkness, and the light which God's kingdom is defined as the kingdom of light, a great light had come to them. And it says in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4, that from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, here it is, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Fascinating. In Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus talks about both aspects of the kingdom, the, the spiritual and the physical. After he had healed 10 lepers, the Pharisees would approach Jesus and they would say, now, Jesus, when the kingdom of God would come, or they would ask Jesus, excuse me, when the kingdom of God would come, and he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observations, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. So the Pharisees again are coming to him and they've seen him do this miracle and they begin to talk to him about like, who are you and, and what is it that we're you know, thinking about is this, this kingdom and the idea is their focus is on this physical kingdom. Hey, when will the kingdom of God come? And they were wanting to trap him, but they were wanting to see him weigh in on all of that. And Jesus is basically going, look, this is not a kingdom. The kingdom that I come to bring right now is not something that you're going to observe in the physical realm. No one's going to go, okay, there it is, just like the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, there it is, just like the Roman Empire. 
No, it, it is not going to be a physical kingdom right now with a physical throne, with a physical king right now. That is, that is in the future, but not right now. The kingdom I come to bring, the kingdom I'm all about, he says, is the kingdom of God that will be within you. He knew that the focus was on a physical kingdom. That's why they asked for an outward manifestation of that kingdom. But Jesus said again, there will be no outward observation at this time. And he's basically setting their theology straight. So he first talks about the spiritual aspect of the kingdom. Again, the kingdom of God is in those who are submitted to the king of the kingdom. The Pharisees did not see that, so the kingdom is not in them. The king, King Jesus, is right there in front of him. Right there in front of those Pharisees, but they are, are rejecting him. Then he talks about the timing of his physical kingdom with his disciples. And this is important. Verse 22 he addresses his disciples on the coming of his physical kingdom by saying, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the, the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as lightning flashes out of one part under heaven and shines to another part of heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But notice in verse 23, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus says this. He goes, listen, when it comes to the day that I will set up my physical kingdom on the earth, which is not right now, but will be in the future. Number one. Don't, don't believe all these little pockets of false teachers who are going to say that they know when Jesus is coming. Don't believe them. Don't believe them when they say, come follow us. Don't follow them. His coming. Jesus goes, when I come, it will be sudden, in verse 12, like lightning. It will affect the whole world. Secondly, in verse 25, before that comes... I've got to go to the cross. <laughs> Before that kingdom ever come, I've got to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So he puts the timing in its context. And then in verses 25 through 29, Jesus, he gives us a more clear view of four distinct circumstances that will surround his coming when he establishes his physical kingdom on the earth. And I think this is important, and I've, I've added this part to this study because I believe we're close. I believe there's a lot of things happening in the world right now in which we live that could be these very signs that Jesus said would happen that would be happening around the time when he would come to establish his physical kingdom on earth. And he says this in verse 20, uh, 26-ish. He says, and, and as it is in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man, where they, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it also was in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Listen, verse 30. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What will it be like? Well, it will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And, and one thing we know is, as that, that description Jesus gives us of those days, it will be 
business as usual. In Genesis chapter 6, referring to the days of Noah, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Noah's society was a very self-absorbed society, a very self-centered society. It was caught up in pleasure. It was caught up in debauchery, in immorality. Right up until the end, when Noah and his family entered the ark. And the same must be true for the society in which Jesus will reveal himself again when he comes to establish his physical kingdom. You look around. You tell me if our society today fits that bill. In Lot's case, it was the same. This city was known for its debauchery. It was known for its pervasive evil ways. It was known as a city that was ready and ripe for judgment. Immorality had run rampant. Homosexuality had run rampant. The whole idea of this picture that Jesus would bring, he'd be saying, listen, when I come to set up my kingdom, it'll be just like Lot. He's saying, oh, 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 it is going to be very perverse. It is going to be very immoral, but everybody is going to be looking at that as the norm. It's going to be a time where immorality is accepted, not rejected. It's going to be a time where perversity is accepted, not rejected. It's going to be a time where everybody's just living their life to fulfill their lust, the passions of their flesh. But at that time, judgment came. And when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom again, judgment is tied to that. In both of those cases, in the minds of society, it was business as usual, even as immorality and perversity was growing. In both of those cases, there was a warning of impending judgment, but the majority of, of society scoffed at it. Second Peter Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? In both cases, the days of Noah, the days of Lot, regardless of the majority's position, judgment came. In verse 27, of, 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 uh, in, in Noah's account, it says, They ate. They drank, they married, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. They were living in denial of judgment when judgment came. And in both cases, church, believers, there's a believing minority that was spared. Spared from judgment before judgment struck. But there would come a time when that judgment would come. And that judgment that Jesus talks about in the future, I believe, is not too far in the future where, where he will come and establish, listen, his literal physical kingdom. Coming back to the spiritual kingdom. Coming back to the, the, the kingdom of heaven that, that Jesus came and said, it is at hand. The, the, the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual kingdom that John talked about before him, who said, it is at hand. There would be a time where, where John would be the forerunner, and he would begin to talk about it and point people to it. There would be a time when Jesus would walk on the earth, and he would begin to talk about it and point people to it. But then there would be a time when, when Jesus would begin to entrust his followers with this message. There'd be a time when Jesus would begin to entrust the expanding of this spiritual kingdom to his followers. Matthew chapter 16, <clears throat> Jesus, he is with the disciples. He's walking 
up north by Mount Hermon, actually below Mount Hermon, and he walks into the city of Caesarea Philippi. And as he did, he, he looks around. I've been there many times, and even today there's a lot of the ruins that depict what kind of idolatry was practiced in that region. Even when Jesus walked through there with his disciples, there was worship to all kinds of foreign gods, little g, gods that were made up by men, the gods of Baal, the noted god in that area was the pagan god Pan, P-A-N. He's the god that, uh, out of Greek mythology, it, he, has a, he has like a goat kind of head, crazy hair, horns, uh, a, a horse or goat-like body, and he's often shown playing the, the, the Pan flute. We derive our English word panic from that Greek word for the Greek god Pan. But Pan was... <clears throat> The, the, the God, the perceived God in the minds of the people of agriculture. And like all of the made-up gods, the false gods, there is appeasement that is required. There is the obligation placed on the worshiper to appease that foreign god. It's not so when it comes to Christianity. Because... What, what God needs as far as <clears throat> from us, well, that was placed on his son. Any appeasement that would be required upon the one true living God was placed on his son. And when he died on the cross, he paid our debt and he appeased the, the wrath, you might say, of God, the holy wrath of that God has against our sin. Not against us, but against our sin. God is like really not happy about that which separates us from him. And appeasement is needed. And God placed that on his son. But when it comes to the foreign gods, the pagan gods, the appeasement is placed on the worshiper. And so these people would come. They'd bring their sacrifices up north to the city of Caesarea Philippi, to appease that God. Oh man, we don't want you upset, so here's our sacrifice. We, we pray that you would give us a great crop this year, oh false God of Pan. And as you walk through that region today, there's all kinds of altars still there. There's caves. There's areas that you could see where they were worshiping these false gods. As Jesus walked with his disciples through that region, he said, who do men say that I, the Son of of man am. When Jesus says that in your Bibles, in, in, in verse 13 there, the word son is capitalized. And it's a reference. The son of man is a reference towards the Messiah. He was claiming to be the Messiah. It's capitalized because he is God. He's claiming deity. He's claiming Messiahship. He's saying, I'm the Savior. But he asked the question, who do men say, guys, that I, the son of man, am? Some said, you know, they're running around saying you're John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah or the other prophets, one of the other prophets. And he personalized the question. Who do you? And this is important for all of us, of course. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, he spoke up and he got it right. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And before we get on to the point I want to make here regarding the kingdom, I want to stop right here. And I want to encourage any of you who have never considered this question. You are listening and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ. That question is an inescapable question. We've got to answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? To get it, to get it right, you'll be saved by him. You'll be forgiven by him, and you will spend eternity with him in heaven. You get that right, or you ignore to answer that question at all. Marginalize it, minimize it, ignore it. You will not be saved. You will not be forgiven of your sin, and you will have an eternity, but it won't be in heaven. It will be in hell. So where and how you answer this question is very important, and when you answer this question it's very important. 
Who do you say Jesus is? And Jesus said to Peter's answer, you got it right. That he is, he is God. He is the Savior. And, and, and before this day is over, I'll pray a simple prayer where you can invite Jesus into your heart and allow him to forgive you and allow him to save you and allow him to just completely take the direction that you were going in eternity and, and change that from hell to heaven. It's good news. Jesus says, Peter, you got that right. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And, and I'm going to say, Peter, you are a rock. I, I want you to know, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this is when he says this. I will give you, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter got the, the question right. You are, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus was excited about that. Oh, John didn't reveal this to you. James didn't reveal this to you. This is something my father downloads when guys' hearts are open to the truth of his word. Man, you, you've connected the dots. You realize I am the Savior of the world. You realize I am the Messiah. Okay, Peter, I like that confession. And, and upon that confession of faith, I am going to build my church. That's what Jesus is saying. The, the word church, they're used by Jesus. Fascinating. It, it's the word ecclesia. It's the called out ones. It's those who are born into this world with sinful natures, with a depraved, uh, we are born into depravity, and we are, we are alienated and separated from God. We're a, a world apart from God. But to those who put their faith in Jesus and they recognize him as their personal Lord and Savior. They are, they are born again. And they are brought out of that world and brought into a personal, intimate relationship with Christ. What, a, what, a, what an amazing transition that is. And that's the ecclesia. Those that have been caught, called out of the world and brought into a relationship with God through Christ. And that is how Jesus says he would build his church. With each person who does that, his church grows. With every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ to save them, his church grows. If this morning you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, his church grows. Peter, I am going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus was saying this, Peter, I am going to use you to lead people into my kingdom. And so we look at Peter's life. We look at him following the resurrection. We look at him in Acts, the book of Acts, where the gospels, the four gospels, give us what Jesus did in his physical body. In the book of Acts, it shows what he continued to do through his spiritual body, which was the church. He had told Peter, I am going to use you to lead people into my kingdom. This is important. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Jesus promised to Peter would begin to be fulfilled as Peter would be used to open the door to the kingdom of God 
to the Jews. Holy Spirit would pour out upon the church. The church would be birthed. There'd be 120 people hunkering down in a room. The Holy Spirit would come upon them. The church would be birthed. In light of that, there were people that were in Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost from all different regions. And they, they were inclined to what they were hearing as the Spirit was being poured out upon these 120 who were hunkered down in a prayer meeting. They were speaking in different dialects. Peter was given an opportunity for the first time to preach. It's the first sermon that we have in the book of Acts. It's the first sermon from Peter in the book of Acts. Peter says part of that sermon after preaching Jesus to them. He says, Therefore let it be known to all of the house of Israel a surety that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said this, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And it says, and, and many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Men, be saved from this perverse generation. And then it says in verse 41, I love this part of the book of Acts. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. I wonder how many souls will be added to the church today. By, By God, by the Holy Spirit, working through sermons, Bible studies, just like this, through online platforms all around the world. As the gospel's going out, as some of you right now are possibly feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit, I wonder how many of you right now are considering the king and the doorway to his kingdom has been opened up to you and you're about to step in, or maybe already you have stepped in. 3,000 on that day. And then it says about those who were saved. Verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And that that describes the early church. What we are doing right now, studying God's word, it says they continued doing that steadfastly. Not flippantly, not casually. No, 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 man. They were into God's word. They couldn't get enough. And that's what's driven many of you to this online Bible study right now. You just, you just want more of God's word. But they also continued in, in fellowship. In their way, they set time aside, listen, in their own homes to have communion with Jesus. Because that's what fellowship means. It's the Greek word koinonia. And it talks about Intimate, intimate fellowship with Jesus, and it speaks about sharing that fellowship. What Jesus is to me, what he is doing in my life, I am sharing that with you. Who Jesus is to you, what he is doing in your life, you are sharing that with me. They continued doing that in the early church in homes, right away in homes. Kind of interesting. But they also were breaking bread and they they were praying together and breaking the bread could refer to what we do in our communion services which you can be doing in your own homes and just looking at the Lord's body and taking a piece of bread as he asked us to and and holding that up and praying over it and breaking it so let's remember his body which is broken for us 
pouring a cup of grape juice or whatever you have and, and, and remembering his blood that was shed. It could be a reference to that. There could be a reference to this. They're, they're eating together. But it says that, that they were doing this steadfastly. And then it says in verse 44, now all who believed were together and they had all things in common. Listen, we're defining what the, the kingdom of heaven looks like when it's practiced, when it's lived out. Fascinating. Ten years later, following the day of Pentecost, when, when God would use Peter to open the, 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 to use the key, if you will, the, the work of the Spirit, to open the door to the Jews. Ten years later, God would also use Peter to open up the door to the kingdom to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, there would be a series of events in Acts chapter 10 that would lead Peter from his city of Joppa, which was down by the sea, and, and he would travel along the coast by way of some messengers that God had sent to him, and he would come up to another Caesarea by the sea. And there, there would be a Gentile house. And as God was working on Peter to actually go and prepare a message, Peter for 10 years had convinced himself that the message of the gospel was just for the Jews. But now the door of the kingdom would be opened up to the Gentiles. And through a vision, God helped Peter realize that it was time to take the message to the Gentiles. While God was working on Peter in a vision, while he was hanging out on the rooftop of his house in the city of Joppa, just right up the coast in the city of Caesarea Philippi, God was working on another religious guy by the name of Cornelius. And he was talking to him and, and preparing him for the message that he would need to receive from this man Peter at the same time. Cornelius, you need to be sending your guys to this guy and have him come to your house because I have a message for you. And when Peter got to that house, he had no idea that when he would open the door and walk into the house of Gentiles, that, man, God was opening the door of the kingdom to Gentiles. Up until that point, for Jews, even Peter and the disciples, they still were working through their traditions and working through a lot of traditions that needed to change. And part of that was how they viewed non-Jews, how they treated non-Jews. Up until this point, it would have been safe to say that your average Jew believed Gentiles couldn't be saved. Your average Jew would have believed that if they bumped into a Gentile, they'd have to go home and wash their clothes and take a bath because they were defiled by that Gentile. Up until this point, it'd be safe to say a Jew would not walk into the house of a Gentile. But the kingdom of heaven was about to be opened up to Gentiles. And God needed to grab the heart of the one that he said he would use. He'd give him the key to open the door to expand the kingdom to the Gentiles. So Peter goes in. He's like, you know, this is not something I'm used to. I'm paraphrasing. But he says, I want you to know, I've come to learn that God shows no partiality. I want you to know that the message of Jesus is for every nation. I want you to know that Jesus is Lord of all. And I want you to know, we are witnesses of the things of which Jesus did both in the land of the Jews and, and even in Jerusalem, referring to the cross and his death, burial, resurrection. He says, whom the Jews killed by hanging on a tree. But him, that same one, God raised him up, Cornelius. And he's talking to Cornelius and his household, these Gentiles. He raised him up on the third day. And then, then, that he went around and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us 
who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This is Peter's own word. Then in verse 42 of Acts chapter 10, he says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, the prophets, they, they witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission or forgiveness of sins. And here it is. I love this. In verse 44, it says, while Peter is still speaking the, these words, it says that the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word and those of the circumcision, the Jews that were with Peter, <laughs> the ones that already believed, they were, they were astonished. So these Jews that were now saved or converted, <laughs> they are there with Peter walking into non-Jews' house. They listen to Peter preach the gospel, preach Jesus. And as he's beginning to talk about the cross and the burial and the resurrection, they're looking around and they see the Holy Spirit falling on these Gentiles. And they hear them begin to speak with tongues and magnify the Lord. Now, as it, as it relates to, to the study of the office and the role of the Holy Spirit, there's, there's three distinct things that the Spirit will do in our lives. In John chapter 14, it says that the Holy Spirit will be with us. That is the Greek word para. The idea is that he will be with us before we are saved, convicting us of our sin and pointing us to the one who will forgive us of our sin. So the Holy Spirit's role before we are saved is to be with us. Then John chapter 14, Jesus says, but he will also come in you. And that's the Greek preposition en. It means to indwell. And that's what happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, ask him to save us, invite him to come into our life. He does. He indwells us. So the Spirit will be with us, convicting us of our sin, pointing us to the Savior. Once we repent and accept him, the Holy Spirit will come in us. But then there's that third office, that third role that the Holy Spirit will have. And that, that is the Spirit's role of coming upon us. And that is the Greek word epi. And we see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Epi speaks of uh, the empowering to witness, the empowering to serve the empowering of our gifts. And you're going to become my witnesses, he says, beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So the work of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing work that dates back to Acts chapter 10 for sure. Here they are. Peter's preaching Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is convicting these who are yet to be saved that they need to be saved. Somewhere along that line, they're surrendering their heart. They're agreeing. They're accepting this. And somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit came in them. How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit won't come upon you until he is in you. And that is so cool for you to think through as we're talking about the expanding of God's kingdom today. God desires, if you right now are not a Christian, he so loves you and he so desires to save you like right now. The door is open to his kingdom. He wants his son, King Jesus, to come and to reside in your life. And all you need to do is believe and, and receive like, like these here. What a beautiful picture of how the kingdom was expanding in the days of the early church. When, when this happens... All these Jews, man, they're like, whoa, these, these Christian Jews, they're tripping out that now Gentiles are actually saved because there's evidence. The Holy Spirit has come upon them. They can't deny it. They heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That's what that gift is all about, magnifying God. And Peter answered and said, can anyone forbid water? In other words, hey, man, can, would you guys agree it's time to get these guys baptized in water? And that's what it was all about. 
in the early days in the early church. What a great model. Just like Jesus was baptized in water, giving us an example of what we should do, the early church would baptize their converts. And for any of you that that are are getting saved through these these studies that we're doing online, we we love hearing from you. We thank you for letting us know that. And, And we would encourage you to think through Walk through ways that you can be baptized in water as well. It is not a prerequisite to salvation. In other words, you don't have to be baptized in water in order to be saved. No, we baptize in water those that are saved. I always like to say it this way. I have my wedding ring here on my finger. And this is an outward statement of these vows and these commitments that I have made to my wife, Lori, and to God on the inside. And I want everyone to know I am married, happily married. I love this girl. I'm devoted to her. I'm one with her. And that's what water baptism is as well. Once we are saved, now we have something to proclaim. Hey, I want to show you outwardly what has happened inwardly. And as I go down in the water, that's what happened to my old man. As I come up out of the water... I am saying, that's the new man, raised to new life by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He has given me new life. I'm a new creation. So we'd encourage you to really think through some creative ways to make that happen. Give us a call. We'll we'll figure out a way to make it happen. Lastly, this took time. This whole idea about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, a literal kingdom and a spiritual kingdom. It would take some time for the disciples to get it. And that's why I thought it was important, this this study at this time in the sequence of our studies as we're under this homestay order to really consider the kingdom of God, to, to really break it down because there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to understand but it's essential that we do understand. When you think about Jesus, and he comes back for 40 days after he's raised from the dead, if if you ran into someone who saw that, they would ask you a couple of questions. They'd say, what did he look like, number one, and what did he say? What did he say? And if you went to the Gospels and you came to the book of Acts, you go, you know, really, his message was about a kingdom. We can't, we can't miss it. If we go back to where we started this study in Acts chapter 1, where it says in verses 1 through 6, where Luke is saying, look at that former account that I gave you, my gospel about Jesus, all that he began to do and, and teach, and, and moving forward until the day he was taken up, well, during those 40 days between, you know, the resurrection and his ascension, he was speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Fascinating. But it goes on to say, but being assembled in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me and and." And, and it's going to come a few days from now. He's talking about Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church and the church is birthed. And he says this, Therefore, when they had come together, Luke says, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Their, their focus, even after the resurrection, well, still a little bit, Ooh, we still got to get this lined up. Hey, will you, will you restore this literal kingdom right now? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. But you guys, I read this earlier, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that you can be my witnesses. You can proclaim this message. My message, who I am, why I came, what I, have, what I have to author, beginning in your Jerusalem, your own home, Judea, surrounding neighborhoods, 
Samaria, surrounding regions, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Listen. I know there are a lot of Christians that are crying out Maranatha for the right reasons. Maranatha is Lord. Come quickly. We would want nothing more than, than, than Jesus to come back for us and as he's promised to, to take us out of here. And if we follow our timetable, our prophetical timetable, that would be the, the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians chapter, chapter 4. In the book of Revelation, we get to chapter 4 and 5 there, and we see the church taken up. And none of us would be like, Lord, don't come. I think a serious Christian who longs for him and longs for heaven would say, Lord, Lord, come. But then there's other Christians who might be so inconvenienced right now, and their life is so disrupted, they'd be like, man, I just wish he had come and set up his kingdom like right now. I think as we close this out, it'd be a good thing to consider what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Listen, don't, don't get all focused on that right now for the sense of, being liberated. They were excited about his liberation because of the oppression and the tyranny of Rome that they were under. The oppression was serious. Man, free us from that by setting up your literal kingdom right now. Jesus says, do not get caught up in that. Those times and the season for that is in my father's authority. Okay, shift your focus from that to what? You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you are going to be my witnesses. It's now on us, kingdom kids, to be John the Baptist-like, to go out and to proclaim the kingdom, to let people know the king has come, to let them know about the spiritual kingdom, to let them know how they can enter into that kingdom and let them know how Jesus, the king, would desire to save them and rule and reign on their, the throne of their heart as Lord. This is our time. This is our place. The opportunity has been set before us. The world, apart from God, right now has heavy hearts and open minds. But the world that has been saved and is part of God's family, believers, Christians, we are seeing a reviving. We are seeing more people share their faith. We are seeing more people become emboldened. We are seeing people invite people to church, to, to settings like this, like, like never before. And, and the the kingdom of God is advancing like never before in our lifetime. Oh, I pray as a, a believer to my fellow believers out there that you're seizing the moment, that you're prayed up, you're seeking the Holy Spirit, and that he is empowering you to be a greater witness each day at a time in a world where the world is more receptive each day. Lord, come quickly. Maranatha. But until then, empower me, fill me, and use me to expand your kingdom. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about how, how God expands the kingdom through his word. We'll go through Mark's gospel and we'll look at what we call, or what is labeled there, the kingdom parables. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another opportunity to open your word and to be fed. Thank you for opening the door to your kingdom, this spiritual kingdom, which we who are saved are part of. We know that that spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, is wherever you, Jesus, are enthroned. We who are saved, we thank you for being enthroned on our heart. We thank you for what you have done with our life since the moment we gave it to you. We ask that you would continue 
to use us and capitalize on us who know you as king to tell others about you as king. Lastly, for those who have yet to accept you, if that is you, I want to lead a very simple prayer that you can express yourself to God and allow him to do what he sent his son to do on your behalf. Would you pray this with me? Say, Father, I, I understand as I look at your word that I am a sinner. Just confess that to him. Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So just confess that. Lord, I, I am one of those sinners. And, and, and tell, tell God, say, I, I need forgiveness and I need salvation. And, and I would encourage you to talk to Jesus right now. Say, Jesus, I, I believe that you took on flesh, that you died in that flesh on a cross for me. You were buried, and three days later you raised from the dead. So I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life to forgive me, to save me, and to be my personal Lord and Savior right now. I invite you to be the Lord of my life, to sit on the throne of my heart, and, and just thank him. Thank him for saving you. Thank him for forgiving you. And thank him for bringing you into his kingdom. Father, we love you. We are so humbled by the work you are continuing to do Thank you for the continued vision. Thank you for the continued health. Thank you for the continued favor. Thank you for the continued platforms. Thank you for this growing audience that is attentive and receptive. Thank you for the work you're doing in their hearts, their marriages, their homes, their families. Lord, protect them. Keep your hand on them until you come for us, until we get to, to meet Again, as a, as a church, here, there, or in the air, keep your hand on us. In Jesus' name.